Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Rambling with Ryu. I'm Bean. And I'm Nancy. And today we're talking to a very special guest. His name is Eric Harness, and he is the godfather of activity-based training when he founded it in 1999. Eric, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Bean. Thank you, Nancy. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, we are super excited to talk to you. I guess we'll just start with you telling us a bit about yourself and how you got to where you are. I'll do my best. I went to San Diego State University for athletic training, graduated in 97. I spent the first couple of years doing sports training with Olympic and college high school athletes. That's when I met a trainer named Ted Darzinski, who had his own facility and was looking for somebody to train out of his facility, rent space, basically. Okay. So that's how I came to meet him. And he had started working with the first spinal cord injury client. So he didn't know anything about spinal cord injuries. He had a doctor who was an orthopedic client of his who had a friend who got a spinal cord injury. And that friend was not happy with the physical therapy he was receiving at the Veterans Administration. Mm-hmm. So he was looking for some sort of alternative that could push his limits. Mm-hmm. And so... The client said, hey, well, I've been trained with this guy. Why don't you come see him? Maybe he's, maybe he can do something. That was Mike Thomas, who was the first Project Walk client. He started working with Ted, and I had seen Mike come in and didn't really know anything about spinal cord injuries either. Mm-hmm. And so I watched him working with Ted for a few months and saw him making some improvements. So I basically went up to Ted told him I'd like to watch what you're doing and basically volunteer my time to see how you're doing what you're doing, see if I can put any input in there that can help us help Mike out. And that was the basis for activity-based training. That's where it came from was basically both of us were sports trainers, didn't have any background in spinal cord injuries. Mm-hmm. So we came at the problem or the injury from a sports background. So when you have an injured athlete, you're trying to get them back to their competition or whatever sport they're doing. So most of the times you're breaking down that sport into its smallest component parts Mm -hmm. and building the client, that athlete back up to being full strength. So we started looking at spinal cord injury from the same perspective as these people were Athletes, basically their athletic competition was walking, right? So let's break walking down into its smallest forms Mm -hmm. and its component parts and figure out how we can get them back to walking. So that was was kind of the basis of everything. And then it just kind of grew from there. That's awesome. Honestly, first of all, thank you so much for doing that and for bringing your knowledge and your know-how and making activity-based training because this has impacted so many lives around the world, myself included, and Nancy's too. (laughs) So yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, it's amazing. Back then, I mean, we I don't like to say we didn't know what we were doing, but we didn't have any idea of the fact that this wasn't being done. Mm -hmm. So because we weren't physical therapists and we had no experience with spinal cord injuries, We didn't know what they were doing with spinal cord injuries. So the more clients we got, Mm -hmm. the more we realized what we were doing was way outside the norm. Mm -hmm. We didn't understand why it was so way outside the norm. 
So we just assumed what we were doing was, you know, what people were experiencing in the hospitals until, you know, more and more and more people came in and said, oh, no, this is this is way beyond what anything that we're doing in the hospital. So the more clients we got that reinforced what we were doing was so different, I started looking, really, I wanted to know why what we were doing was so different, what the norm normal physical therapists were doing or normal OT, whatever normal hospital therapy was. Mm-hmm. And then understanding, because we were seeing the progress we were seeing with clients, I wanted to know, was there research to back up what we were doing? Because mm-hmm. in my head, from an athletic perspective, training athletes, there was all kinds of research that showed what we were doing. If it was geared towards an athlete, it made absolute sense. Yeah. So I wanted to know, was there research out there that showed what we were doing made sense for spinal cord injuries? Because clients would go back to their doctors or therapists and say, oh, I'm doing this. Oh, I'm doing that with these guys. And it's it's so much different. And I'm progressing. Mm-hmm. And we would get a lot of clients come back and go, oh, my doctor says, you don't know what you're doing. Or my PT says, I shouldn't be doing that. You know, they're, they're risking your health. They're risking injury. Mm-hmm. So... That's where I started looking into the research that was out there that was available. And there wasn't a lot on humans, but there was a ton of research done in animals, specifically rats as usual, showing that increasing activity, giving the rats lots of things to do after a spinal cord injury improved their function more than just putting them in a box and letting them sit there by themselves. So mm-hmm. so that's when I started really trying to put together the research background to what we were doing. And that way I could give it to clients to take to their doctors, take to the therapist going, look, there is a research basis for what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So we're not just throwing things at a wall and hoping they'll stick. Yeah, We're actually coming at it from somewhat of a research-based background and yeah, we're pushing the, the boundaries of these different areas, but there is a solid basis for what we were doing. So that's kind of the beginning of everything that's happened. And it's quite amazing to see how far it's progressed. Yeah. Now, granted, I'm happy how far it's progressed now, but I'm still amazed at how much it hasn't still been accepted. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a lot of places that do similar things and are trying to integrate that type of stuff into their programs. And it's usually the the better, the bigger hospitals, the more advanced hospitals, the more research-based hospitals. But even some of the my areas specifically, San Diego, mm-hmm. we have one of the highest rates probably of, of young adults being injured in spinal cord injuries in California, if not the nation, mm-hmm. because we have a lot of extreme sports, a lot of surfing, a lot of things where you can get injured. Yeah. And our rehab here, no offense to anybody who's listening to this that may be involved in rehab in San Diego, sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a global problem. Yeah, I mean, even when we started our center here in Canada, like we were fighting a battle uphill to get accepted. And I mean, we still are. Right, right. And, and now there's so much research out there that supports what we're doing. Mm-hmm. There's research from hospitals, there's research from universities mm-hmm. that support this type of program, but yeah, you still get pushback and it makes no sense to me. Yeah, so let's back up a little bit. So you had your first client, Mike. At what point did you get your second, third, fourth? Like, did that take off right from the beginning or was it a slow process for you guys? It started out slow. So Mike was probably, he was in there for about 
eight months or so before we had another client come in and that was another VA person. So it was a woman who was in the VA. She had seen Mike at the VA and she saw his progress and she was like, well, what are you doing? Because you're progressing way better than I am. I want to know what you're doing. And so he told her what we were doing and she started coming in. She was second client. Then we probably had one or two after that. Those were all just kind of people, you know, those people telling other people. Yeah, that word of mouth. Right. And so we didn't have, I'm trying to remember the exact timeline, but I don't think we had a website up until 2001-ish. So for about two years, we didn't really have a website. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we put a website up and then all hell broke loose. So not only did we get clients, but we also got all the people out, like the medical profession out there going, oh, you're selling false hope and, you know, telling people that they're going to do things that they're not going to do. And honestly, if you read the website, it literally said, there is no guarantee with what we're doing. We're not promising anything other than to push you as hard as you can be pushed and work as hard as you do to get back as much function as you possibly can. Now, how that's giving somebody false hope, I have no idea. But that's what they kept claiming. So, Well, okay, there's no such thing as false hope. There's either hope or no hope, right? I don't know where they get this concept of false hope from. Right. I don't know either. I don't know what that means. So, Yeah, I mean, let's just address it a little bit further. I know in uh, one of the, I guess, lectures you did that I listened to from a conference, I think it was on uh, a website or YouTube or something, but you put it in a way I think a lot of medical professionals can understand it better. But that false hope versus false pessimism. Do you want to dive into that a little bit? Sure. I'd love to take credit for that that terminology, but false pessimism actually came from Mike Jones at Shepherd Center. He's the head of research there or vice president of research. And we had done a couple of research projects together and we were at another conference for the American College of Rehabilitation Medicine giving a talk. And he said, hey, what do you think about this, this term and, and kind of having that dichotomy of false hope versus false pessimism? And all of us on the panel thought that was a great way of framing it. So full credit to Mike for coming up with false pessimism, because I think it's mm-hmm. a great term. Yeah. Because to me, that's what people are getting in the hospital a lot of places. Granted, it's changed a lot since, you know, in the past 20 years. 20 years ago, doctors were more than happy to tell people, hey, here's your entry level. This is all you can expect to get back. Mm -hmm. Just deal with it. Live your life and expect this. Also, at that time, you might have a couple of doctors say, hey, you might want to try and work as hard as you can for the first couple of years because you're going to get back whatever you're going to get back in the first two years. Yeah. But we saw people 10 years post-injury getting back way more function than they had the previous 10 years. So it wasn't like you had this little window to get back function. So telling people that in the hospital and saying, this is all you're going to get back, that to me is true false pessimism. That's basically saying, this is all you're ever going to get back, so don't even try. Yep. Mm-hmm. And you talk about giving false hope. I mean, that's like crushing any hope. I mean, that's just putting a sledgehammer on it. Yeah, I, I think it stems from like back in the day when they just thought getting any kind of recovery is impossible. But even though, like you said, it's been studied, it's been shown, they're still not really wrapping their head around the real potential that all these people have. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Well, that's the other thing, as I found, 
most doctors don't, and PTs, and I don't want to hammer PTs or OTs, whatever, but a lot of them don't continue on looking at the basic research or new research that comes out. They kind of get wedged in their little boxes, Mm -hmm. and they might look at some research that comes out, let's say it's human-based research or something like that, rather than, let's say, going back and looking at rats and things like that. Granted, rats don't always translate to humans, but it's a good place to start mm-hmm. and say, hey, you know, this may work. Let's try it rather than not going, you know, looking at more, like I said, basic research, more low level research that may have give you some spark to try and trigger some ideas. Sorry, I went off on a tangent there. Apologize. <laughs> no, that, that's good. So that's kind of jumping into how do you go about creating the ABT program, so activity-based training program. So you mentioned a lot of it was based on the animal models and that kind of research and your athletic sports training background. Right. But was there anything specific that you were like, yes, this is what I want in my program? Yeah. So when we first started, it was, especially the first couple of years, it was let's try what we're doing with athletes and see if it works. And it would be, let's, let's try this with this person. Okay. This didn't work. Let's try it with this person. Okay. It didn't work. Let's try it with this person. Oh, it worked with that person. Why did it work with that person? And try and figure out, okay, do these concepts not work at all? Do they work with a certain subset of the injury or do they work with all everybody? So there were things we had to totally throw out, say that doesn't work. And there were things we say, okay, well, this will work with a, a para, but not a tetra, or this will work with an incomplete, but not a complete, or, hey, this concept works with everybody. So that's kind of where we started from and basically bringing in these different athletic sports training type techniques. And then part of it was looking at how does a child develop the the way to walk? How does an infant learn to walk, right? Mm-hmm. So we really looked at the different developmental activities that a child goes through, which would be, you know, be prone and push yourself up onto your elbows and then being able to get into a hands and knees position, a kneeling position and learning to balance in all those positions and then being able to stand and obviously being able to walk. So the thing with those those different developmental activities is they're teaching the body how to stabilize itself to walk properly. So that became a core part of our program was the developmental activities because that's, I believe, tapping into a part of the brain that still exists but may be dormant in an adult. So you're trying to tap into that developmental part of the brain that may be able to give the body and the nervous system the stimulus to hopefully reroute some of the nervous signals so that they're able to become more functional below level injury. Because those developmental activities, I believe, are really powerful stimulants to the body. Because if they weren't, I don't believe they would be so crucial to a child learning how to walk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when creating those programs, you mentioned the developmental uh, activities and that kind of thing. Was there any sort of intensity to the programming that you found was the most beneficial? So in the beginning, were you doing like less training, more training, a specific um, like dose, if you will? Yeah. So we had a lot of clients who came in almost every day. And we also had no limit to the amount of hours you could be in the program. So people would come in for four or five hours, six hours. 
And what we found was, yeah, they may make progress, but the body was not ready to handle that much stimulus that quickly when they're that dysfunctional. So what we found over time, and it took a while, was figuring out what's the best amount or what seems to be the best amount of activity in one day to basically get everything in, not completely destroy the client physically or mentally, and allow them to have time to recover. So what we found was three hours was pretty much the maximum per day that that most clients could deal with physically and mentally. And then we tried to get most clients to be on a, a three or four day a week schedule at the most, just to allow their body a day off to kind of process everything that had happened the day before and also allow them to physically recover from what they had experienced. I know there's some research out there now and there's few programs like Dr. Wai Zhang has his 666 program where it's mm-hmm. six hours a day, six days a week for six months. Mm-hmm. Personally, I think that's a lot for a person to go through. I respect him and he's got a lot of research to back it up. I'd like to see it in action and see what they're doing for those six hours Mm -hmm. and see how intense it is for that six hours to really make a judgment. But it's the same thing as an athlete. Like I said before, if you treat these injuries like an athlete, then athletes need days off to recover. No matter how elite the athlete is, they need days off to recover physically and mentally from their training programs. So that's where I'm at on that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, fair enough. I mean, one thing that we like to say is like what we can do in one hour, one, once a week, or even three times a week is not going to maximize your recovery. It's what you do outside of there. So in terms of like homework and that sort of stuff, would it be three hours at your center and then go home and do more stuff? Or would it be taking that time off? See, for me, I don't have a center, so I'm mobile. So I go to people's homes. Yeah. But I give people homework to do usually on the days I'm not there. So I say, you know, do this, do this, do this. That's the tough thing is a lot of people don't do their homework, just like school kids don't do their homework. So So maybe it's beneficial to have people in the program, into a facility every day of the week. I don't know. But just based on our experience, you know, 20 years ago, having people in a program for five or six hours a day, four or five days a week, I saw people just dragging in the final hours each day and I also saw people have a lot more plateaus it seemed like where they would or regressions than than they do with the 3-3 program mm-hmm. so yeah would you contribute that more to like the training effect then you just kind of maxing people out and then you see that plateau similar to an athlete so where you're talking about if they're six six hours or five hours five days a week I, I was attributing that, that's, yeah, there's a training effect, but I think it's an overtraining effect where you're mm-hmm. actually, you're overtraining, which is actually detrimental. Yeah, I think having days off gives you that recovery time so you don't see the bigger and longer plateaus that you do when somebody's working a lot of hours, multiple days per week. Like I said, I think that kicks people into overtraining, and overtraining is not someplace you want to be because that's where you get into the long plateaus, and you also see people regress a little bit. Mm -hmm. All right, and so we've talked a lot about the optimal dosage. So now what makes activity-based training effective? Why is it an effective form of physical rehabilitation for individuals with neurologic impairment? So that's spinal cord injury. 
So ABT, in my opinion, is a, a great stimulus for spinal cord injuries because it, if you're doing the development activities, things like that, you're tapping into those basic um, developmental functions that the brain has in it which again, I believe is a powerful stimulant to the nervous system and the body to try and reroute signals, to try and get those signals through. Yeah, so what makes activity-based training so effective? So let's talk about the underlying principle of activity-based training, the fact that the central nervous system is plastic. So I know there's used to be a lot of controversy over, you know, is there neuroplasticity? Does it exist in the spinal cord? We know that's true. Do you want to dive a little bit more into that? What makes activity-based training more effective than the traditional rehabilitation for spinal cord injury? Traditional physical therapy tends to look at an injury as permanently injured, okay? So let's get the person functional in their chair, able to transfer if possible, able to do activities of daily living if possible. If it's not possible, how can we make them as comfortable as possible, as well as making it as easy as possible for any caregiving to to occur? Mm -hmm. Um, So that, to me, is what most hospital-based physical therapy, OT, et cetera, is for spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. Um, activity-based training looks at it as how do we get this person as functional as possible to do, you know, hopefully to walk again. But if that's not really feasible, how can we get as much function back as possible to allow them to do all these things, right? So, or do all the things they want to do. So that's the, I guess, the different perspectives on how we look at differently at uh, the therapy or the training aspect. Uh, traditional physical therapists may look at a client and say, okay, if we're going to learn how to transfer, then we got to get their arms stronger if that's possible, you know, depending on the level of injury. Mm-hmm. Whereas with activity-based training, we won't necessarily focus on the transferring We'll be looking at, okay, if we want to get them back to walking, we've got to make their core stronger. we got their upper body stronger. we got to try and get their legs stronger. we got to try and get those things to come back functionally if it's not there. And that then will allow them to hopefully be stronger for transferring. So rather than spend the entire therapy session on transferring from your chair to a table and back again, we will be doing all kinds of different exercises that engage the upper body, core, and legs that then hopefully will transfer over to being able to transfer back and forth to your chair. Mm -hmm. So the activities that we do cut, to me, cut across a lot of the activities of daily living that a person may go through, Mm -hmm. but we're not training those specific little activities for hours and hours and hours at a time like you would in the hospital. Mm -hmm. We're training the entire body that will then, the strength and function you gain back from these different activities that we do will then transfer over to those activities of daily living. So back to your original question of the activity-based training and CNS plasticity. So let's just talk. So you talked about the CNS plasticity and how ABT relates to CNS plasticity. So when we first started, there was some basic research that supported what we did, but there wasn't a lot of human-based research. Mm-hmm. The, only, the only human-based research out there at that time really looking at activity-based therapy was stuff done in Germany by a researcher's name Wernig. 
can't remember his mm-hmm. first name. Mm-hmm. And he was the first to really do bodyweight supported training. And he called it mm-hmm. loft band therapy. He was really the first one to do that type of training. And so that's where Project Walk and, um, and myself and Ted, all came, we came up with the motorized gate trainer. I don't remember, was Bean, were you there when we had that, the elliptical trainer? No. Actually, I think you were there. I was going to say, wasn't that the one with ski boot kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were on an elliptical trainer with a harness, mm-hmm. and it had the, the snowboard bindings that locked your feet in, and then it was powered, and it moved your legs through the elliptical motion. So we came up with that idea based off of Wernig's research, and because at the time, we really didn't have the manpower to do treadmill therapy. Mm-hmm. So we had a client whose dad was an engineer, and he came up like, hey, what if I did this? And we said, that sounds like a plan. Let's try it. And so we kind of incorporated that into the program. So that was human-based research that we kind of incorporated into the program for spinal cord injuries. So anyway, I was saying that back then there wasn't a lot of human research. And now, now there's a lot more human research that shows that that plasticity occurs when you introduce activity into the person's therapy as, as far as, you know, intense activity and and activity that's specific to regaining certain functions, like walking mm-hmm. or standing, things like that. And then, so I think it was last year, maybe it was two years ago, there was research, I think it was last year out of Australia, that showed that even complete injuries have sensory function or intact sensory ability or the brain subconsciously senses below the level of injury. So they can't consciously feel, let's say, a touch, but subconsciously, through MRI scans, they've shown that even some complete injuries who, as far as they know, the person who's injured knows, they don't have any sensory because they can't feel it. But their brain subconsciously actually has a signal when you actually touch the person's foot or their leg. So there is, there is an intact sensory channel from the limb or that area to the brain. So what that tells me is even complete injuries who we may think don't really have an ability to regain function because, you know, it's so damaged that there's nothing getting back to the brain, that they may even have the ability to regain function because there's that latent subconscious connection that's there that they're not aware of. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I think it's it's something we see kind of all the time, day in, day out, and I'm sure you've, through your experience, seen it too, is that complete injuries do regain function, mm-hmm. right? And now this is just supporting and proving why we are seeing the change. Right, exactly. So going back to the early years of ABT, that was one of the real big pushbacks. Once we started to get a little bit of acceptance So instead of saying, you don't know what you're doing, then they would come back and say, well, this only works with some incomplete injuries, but you're giving false hope to all the complete injuries. You shouldn't even be working with them. Then it, you know, it gets a little bit further. Okay, well, maybe some, you know, it's just, it it just feels like you're fighting a battle, pushing a rock uphill constantly, you know? Yeah, we're fighting that battle too. Yeah. And we have been, you know, well, since we started Ryu, but really since I first went to Project Walk and started seeing all this stuff and how you really can regain function and stuff. And we really believe that. I think there's people too much put too much weight on the word complete versus incomplete. I think you just have a spinal cord injury and like you try and work as hard as you can to regain as much function and mobility. And there's too much uh, weight put on those words. 
Right, right. I, I totally agree. And that goes back to that false quote, false pessimism thing. So if somebody's diagnosed as complete and the doctor says, oh, well, you're complete, you're never going to get anything back, that's kind of that false pessimism concept. Mm-hmm. So back to the ABT and CNS plasticity. So the concepts that we're trying to promote or the concepts that we base the whole program around or that type of training around is that we're providing the stimulus to the spinal cord in the brain in order to get a motor response, right? So we're trying to provide that sensory stimulus up to the brain into the spinal cord and trying to elicit that motor response out of the brain, out of the spinal cord, and using, hopefully, the plasticity of the central nervous system to find a way to, to route the signal around the injury site. So we're not healing the spinal cord injury. I mean, that's a misnomer. That's part of the whole false hope thing, I think, mm-hmm. is that somehow we're claiming that we're healing the spinal cord or regenerating the spinal cord. That's not really what we're doing. What we're doing is, is using the nerves that are still intact and using the brain and its ability to be plastic and figure out how to send signals around an injury to get that signal down to this muscle that we're targeting. So going back to the basic research is there's a lot of research that shows that doing activity type training with rats will produce a detour or a reorganization of the spinal cord around the injury site. So you get the intact motor neurons that normally wouldn't carry the signal we're trying to get, they start carrying that signal. So you get what's called uh, collateral sprouting, where you get the motor neurons above the level of injury, specifically the ones that may have been damaged that are above the level of injury that are still intact above that injury, and getting them to sprout and actually make connections to neighboring motor neurons, as well as the interneurons at each level that normally carry more reflexive type motor responses. Those have also been shown in rats to start actually carrying conscious motor signals to reroute the signal around the spinal cord. If you look at stroke, tons of research from way before we started Project Walk showing that people with strokes, the opposite side of the brain will start taking over the functions of the damaged side of the brain. So if that can happen in the brain, there's no reason to not assume that similar things can't happen within the spinal cord, right? I mean, it's all one system, so why couldn't that happen? With more and more research, they're starting to see, like I said, that that's an actual possibility. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that went, that actually answered that original question. <laughs> yeah, no, that went way more in depth. That was good. <laughs> yeah, I think just the big misnomers that people don't believe or refuse to see that nervous system plasticity is real. It is a thing. And we're just tapping into it and capitalizing it. And like you say, we're not healing that original injury. We're just a tool and a, and a vessel for helping individuals to recover as much right, function as exactly. possible. All right. So now that we've kind of talked about activity-based training a little bit more in depth as to why it's so important, let's talk about some of the benefits that our clients see from the programs. The benefits that I've seen with clients that I can point to are decreased UTIs, decreased pressure source specifically, better ability to sense their bowel and bladder issues. So if someone has to go to the bathroom, they they tend to start to be able to sense that type of thing. Some people go from having to cath to not having to cath, being able to go on their own. So that's kind of some of the basic functions. Then we get into muscular functions. You know, obviously people are able to 
go from a power chair to a push chair or from a push chair to, you know, possibly standing or walking. People who used to have really horrible posture in their chair now have much better posture. You have people who couldn't push a manual chair uh, without some assistance to pushing themselves, being more independent, being able to drive when previously they couldn't drive because they didn't have the trunk stability to be able to hold themselves up going around corners or braking. Some of the basic stuff there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think you just kind of touched on there's so many different avenues in which you can see the benefits. There's no one specific one that's going to be, you know, across the board for everyone. And that's kind of, I guess, the cool thing that we see is that, you know, you're going to see so many different benefits in so many different areas for each and every person. Right, exactly. And And you can't even say, you know, each person's different. Each person, even if they have the same injury, they may not see the same benefits, but they're each going to have their own progression. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's touch back on one of the things you said is seeing less UTIs. Do you have a theory or understand a little bit more on why that happens, why people have less UTIs? Again, it's not across the board. I'd say that some people have less, some people don't change. I mean, it could be a whole host of things. It could be they feel when they need to urinate better, so they don't have mm-hmm. the issue with holding urine in too long where it could get an infection. Someone who struggled with cathing on their own and because they struggled, they weren't able to keep as sterile as they could. Whereas now as they're stronger, have more dexterity, they're able to keep that sterile field a little bit better. So they're not introducing the bacteria into the bladder. Those are probably the two biggest ones. I would say the ability to kind of sense when you're able, when you need to go is probably a bigger factor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even the different upright postures and the strength of muscles, it allows for the free right, emptying right, of the yeah. bladder as well. Let's talk a little bit about some of the modalities and equipment that ABT centers use or what you guys started with. Did you guys start with any, I'd say modified or medical equipment? So again, you got to remember we started with the athletic a sports kind of base facility. So everything was based around that. So with the spinal cord injuries that we had had originally, so we didn't even have, we didn't even have a big mat table, you know, everything. We just, we got people out of the chair onto the floor and we're working people on the floor. So we just used what we had that we could adapt for the client. Most of it would be, you know, I mean, actually the first time we used a BOSU ball was probably at least a year after we actually started working on spinal cord injuries. So it was really just using kind of basic blocks and straps and, you know, things like that, weights, just simple stuff. Mm-hmm. And then we probably got the first total gym into the facility probably at least a year after. So it probably been late 2000 and going into 2001 mm-hmm. is probably when we got the total gym in. And mm-hmm. we didn't even know what we were going to do with it. <laughs> we got it and we were like, okay, we can do this some way (laughs) yeah and for those that don't know what a total gym is a total gym's like a modified squat so it's reducing gravity to do kind of squats on it more or less if people know like a regular gym it'd be like a hack squat where you're on an angle trying to do basically doing body weight what i will say is it's not the total gym you see on tv you don't want that one that one will break in half the one Chuck Norris represents? Yes, yes, right. <laughs> same same company, just not that model. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we had gotten the total gym, and 
it was one of those, okay, let's put a client on. Okay, now what do I do? <laughs> it was like, you know, at first it was, we're going to put the client on there like, like a tilt table, like get them some partial body weight, right? So we were going to put them on there and lock out their knees and have them do ex- like upper body exercise and some core exercises on there. And then I was like, well, can we kind of do a squat? And we were standing off to the side and one person was holding one leg, one person was holding the other leg. You're like, okay, that kind of worked. Well, okay, what if we sit on the on the foot plate? And we sat on the foot plate and the whole machine almost flipped over. Like, okay, that's not going to work. How do we make this more stable? And so we figured it all out. <laughs> and so that was probably the first real piece of equipment that we specifically bought just to work with the spinal cord injuries. And then after that, I would say came the elliptical, the motorized elliptical trainer that we came up with. And then we didn't have a whole lot of stuff that was specific to spinal cord injuries till we moved to our facility that was in Carlsbad. And that would have been 2002. And then, then we populated it with a bunch of equipment because we were basically going from a sports-based facility to a spinal cord injury-based facility or a neurological-based facility. So we had a lot more equipment in there. But mm-hmm. the vast majority of that equipment still was sports training equipment. We didn't have any medical equipment. We didn't get our first FES bike until 2006, 2007, somewhere around there. And that would have been, I mean, that, that was really our first medical piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything else we did was adapting existing sports-based equipment to spinal cord injury population. Yeah, and we're glad you went that way, too, because it's opened the door for so many other people just to go to a regular gym and be able to think about how to use it differently. Right. And the funny thing is, we, let's, I'm trying to think, I mean, we didn't get our first standing frame probably until, again, like 2006, 2007, somewhere around there. And that was maybe a little earlier than that, but that was strictly because a client didn't want it anymore and he was going to give it away. And he said, do you want this? And we went, not really, but I guess we'll take it because it's taking up space in your house. (laughs) Uh, Because we felt that the standing frame at the time, because we really hadn't used them, was really providing way too much support for people. So at the time, you know, back then we were doing all the standing manually. So we'd block a person's knees, we grab their hips, we lift them up, we support them. But at the same time, we were also seeing, hey, we're kind of standing some people that take a lot of staff to stand. We got to have three people around them to stand them. So mm-hmm. that's really not cost effective. So once we got the standing frame, we're like, okay, let's use this for those people and we'll do the other more advanced stuff with these people. Mm-hmm. So, and then we also recognized, hey, we can also provide a much more stable platform for their lower body in a standing frame and really attack their upper body and their core and keep them, keep them safe mm-hmm. or safer than they would be with us doing with three people standing up. So, so yeah, there's a place for some of that equipment, but it's still good to stay thinking outside the box if you are using that Right, exactly. Well. Don't just put somebody in a standing frame and go, okay, stand. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's how we started, too. It was very simple. We had a table, some yoga blocks, some resistance bands. That was it, right, Nancy? Or we slowly started accruing our, in, our uh, equipment over the years. Yeah. 
Yeah, because like I was mobile before we opened Ryu, so similar to I guess what you're doing now, I guess Eric, going back to that basics of you know you don't need a whole lot to That's make right. an effective program. That's right. I mean, program. I've got. Luckily, I actually have an FES bike I have mobile. But other than that, I've got a mat table, yeah. I've got medicine balls, I've got straps, blocks, I've got a portable squat rack that I can take apart and put together, and I've got a small vibration platform. So, so is there anything you'd want to say to new activity-based trainers, just newly entering the field? Any words of wisdom, anything like that you want to... Run no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, this this type of coming from a where I came from, a sports training program or sports training background, this has been way more rewarding and way more meaningful of anything that I've done previous to this. You know, obviously I've been doing it for twenty years, but before that Dealing with prima donna athletes is uh, a lot different than dealing with people who have spinal cord injuries and really, really, really need your help and appreciate your help. And what's great about it is even 20 years on, it's still in its infancy, in my opinion. So there's still Mm -hmm. so much room to grow. And if you research mine, there's so many avenues to explore. And there's the ability to be creative in this space is huge, again, because it's still, in my opinion, still in its infancy. There's still a lot that that we don't know. And there's a lot of uh, avenues for advancement that we don't even know are there. You know, I'm sure there are things that are going to come up in the next yeah. five years that it's going to be like, wow, why didn't we think about that 20 years ago? Or, wow, that's amazing. You know, why weren't we doing that? So, yeah, I think if you're really dedicated and you want to make a difference, that this field is ripe for people who want to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So where would you specifically like to see activity-based training go in the future? 20 years ago, I'd probably say the exact same thing I'm going to say now. It needs to be in the hospitals at the beginning of everybody's rehab. That's where it needs to be. There are some places out there, the bigger spinal cord dedicated rehab hospitals and programs that are doing this early on, and it's making a difference. Mm-hmm. And it, it needs to be yeah. more widespread because there are so many hospitals out there that have spinal cord injury programs that are smaller. Go away from just spinal cord injury. Spinal cord injury, stroke, MS, yeah. all your neurological injuries or disorders mm-hmm can benefit from this program and so there's no reason it shouldn't be being done in every single rehab hospital in the freaking world and it doesn't (laughs) make sense why it's not i mean the only thing that i can say is it's labor intensive you have to want to put your hands on people if all you want to do is sit there and tell people what to do this is not going to (laughs) work so you can't do that with this program this is a very labor-intensive program. And maybe that's why the hospitals don't want to do it because the therapist has to work one-on-one with the client or they have to PTA or somebody working one-on-one with the client. Whereas, you know, a lot of stuff, they can put three people doing one thing and one person can supervise all three people at the same time, you know, so. Well, I mean, we're fighting that fight too. And we're working with our rehab hospital here to eventually get to that point too, where we have activity-based training in the acute care setting and carried all throughout the rehab setting and then back into the community. Now, do you have the same issue with that hospital where they don't want to listen to you or what's their pushback? 
they're coming around now. That's how we started, but they're coming around. They're seeing the impact that we're having on their patients' lives, how their patients are actually regaining function and getting better, better balance, better bowel, bladder. And it's no longer us just saying it's working. They're seeing that it's actually working. So it is coming around finally. What I really don't understand is why the hospitals, really, especially insurance companies, is why they don't see this as a benefit because you're reducing a lot of the secondary complications and possibly rehospitalizations for clients by making them stronger, making them more functional. So why wouldn't they be doing this so that you're not having this recidivism of going back to the hospital and being sick and and all these other associated costs? I mean, it's really stupid. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are stuck in a box and they can't get out of it. And our systems, especially here, are so backdated. We are in the dark when it comes to a lot of this stuff. And so they just can't see that because they're so stuck in their backwards thinking (laughs) that this isn't even a possibility. But I mean, that's something that we are trying to fight here because no one else is fighting this fight. And we're actually making an impact and, you know, trying to tell people that, hey, people with spinal cord injuries have hope. People with brain injuries have hope. It doesn't matter how severe your brain injury is. As long as you have somebody to believe in you, you're bound to see some sort of increase in your quality of life. And so the more we keep talking about it, the more we keep doing what we're doing, I think that's how this shift is going to happen. But it's definitely not going to be easy. Yeah, well, like I said, it's been over 20 years for me. It still hasn't (laughs) shifted enough, in my opinion. Oh, boy. Well, that's a little disheartening. (laughs) (laughs) Not going to stop us, though. (laughs) No, it shouldn't. I mean, it's just sometimes you feel like you're banging your head against a wall trying to get people to listen to you and understand that this makes a huge difference and would would make a huge difference in, especially like an insurance company, is in their bottom line of making money, right? So, yeah, you're paying maybe more money up front Mm-hmm. for this type of therapy but in the end you're going to save hopefully twice as much or more yeah. from not having them going back to the hospital or getting injured or getting sick or whatever i mean you know a pressure sore can cost i don't tens of thousands of dollars in a simple pressure sore so you get something that's really bad costing you know possibly a hundred thousand dollars in, in surgery costs and all that can be prevented by doing activity-based training. Yeah, we agree 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why we talk about this all day and all night. All right. So, Eric, where are you now and what okay, are you up so to? Okay, so talked about it a little bit was I'm doing mobile training. So I have a company called NeuroX. And what I do is provide activity-based training in people's homes. And uh, I've been doing that since I left Project Walk in 2015. And it's been doing really well. Got a couple of people who work for me. And the whole COVID thing kind of slowed things down a little bit. Lost a few clients, not too many, which I was happy about. And actually, starting probably next week, I'll be back actually above where I was pre-COVID. So I'm happy with that. And yeah, I'd like, you know, for me, you know, I go between the do I want to stay mobile or do I want to have a facility? So I, I kind of float between the two, like maybe I want both, um, because there's <laughs> there's a lot more you can do in a facility than you can do mobile. Yeah. But at the same time, talking to my clients and, you know, some of them would want to go to a facility too, mm-hmm. but 
a lot of them were like, come into the house. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to get dressed and I don't have to, I don't have to drive an hour or whatever, you know, waste two hours driving back and forth. And you can come, I can go to work or I can go to school and then you can come and I don't have all this pre-planning and post-planning stuff to happen, you know, to try and get to a facility and back. Yeah. Anyway, I'm also, I'm getting older, so you know, a facility looks better because uh, I can actually supervise people that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is definitely hard on the body. Mm-hmm. Also, I developed a certification program. I don't know if you guys know that. So I certified my first facility two years ago in Curacao. Mm-hmm. So it was a client who went to Project Walk back probably 2012, 2013 mm-hmm. uh, from Curacao in the Caribbean. And he has his own foundation and he was basically trying to start a facility and he asked me to come down and train his staff. So I actually developed a whole certification program just based off of that. Awesome. And so, yeah, I'm really happy about that. They're doing really great down there. Um, they've got like 50 plus clients and it's amazing. So awesome. it's a very, you know, oh, that's awesome. so that's what I, you know, try and expand that would be would be great so and that's another thing pushing me pushing me towards getting trying to do a facility because that way it's easier to train people to do this is out of a facility yeah that's awesome good job you know you're spreading the words literally around the world i really want to thank you i know i know i've thanked you a few times but like you know, you are the godfather of activity-based training, and because of you, so many people have regained function and mobility, and you've spread your knowledge throughout the world, and you're always so humble and so down-to-earth, and you're just like a regular dude, which is awesome. <laughs> well, thanks. I try not to be weird or uh, stuck up or anything. So. <laughs> cool. Do you want to talk? Do you have anything else you'd want to say? Well, how's, how's your facility doing? Really good. Our, yeah, we've been open just uh, about three and a half years now. We moved into our facility that we're in right now almost two years ago, and it's honestly thriving so much. We're at like a hundred, almost 150 clients. We're back up to seven staff members. Pre-COVID, we were at eight. So surreal sometimes to think like how fast things have grown, and like it's such a scary endeavor <laughs> to embark on, but. It has been incredible. I'm super grateful to have a business partner like Nancy. What what uh, city are you guys in? We're in Edmonton, and there was nothing here before. Like I met a few people in California from here. <laughs> right, right. That's where we really started to see the need. Like, wow, okay, people are moving to California for this therapy. Like, must be worth something. Right, and that's you know that kind of goes back to why this needs to be in in hospitals and things like that. It needs to be in local facilities because Back then, when people were moving to California, I mean, that's a huge expense to move just to be in this program. That I mean, granted, it was great for us at the time to have all these people want to be there, but that was a huge, huge cost for the people that were participating was to have to go, you know, maybe around the world to get what they wanted, which, I mean, it still blows me away how many people from how many countries we saw. But what's great, it has spread around the world to different centers where there are these little ABT centers that are opening up everywhere to try and provide this type of program. Yeah, it'd just be great if it was everywhere. I think it's heading that way. There's, you know, more and more of us popping up, opening our centers and stuff and really showing our communities and our circles that recovery is possible. And it's been a slow process, but like this is 
having a really big outreach, especially in the States, like in Canada, I mean, you know, we only have five centers all across Canada. And I mean, California alone has eight or more, right? <laughs> I don't know how many there are anymore since so many of those project block closed. So I don't know uh, exactly how many there are, but that, that sounds right. Yeah, a lot of them just rebranded <laughs> with a new name. That's what we do. We follow a lot of them. But I just yeah. love how this is changing the world. This is giving people so much hope. The ability to live like a better life, right? And we're just so grateful that you have done what you've done and that you're so passionate about it and that you actually went and made, you know, did the research behind it to show that this is like evidence-based and this actually works. Because that's the evidence we're using right now, <laughs> trying to make the change here. Yeah, and that's why I did it, was because we got so much pushback at the time with the medical community, with the false hope, et cetera, et cetera, back then, mm -hmm. was I started looking at, like I told you, the basic research, but that wasn't the human stuff. And luckily, I was able to partner with Stephen Kramer out of UC Irvine mm -hmm. um, on the first research project I did because he came to me looking for spinal cord injuries for a project he had. And I said, I brought him into the facility and I showed him, I said, yeah, I can give you all the, you know, I can give you a bunch of spinal cord injuries to do your project or at least participate in your project. I said, in exchange, how about you help me with this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I floated my idea of, hey, look, what do you think? We study, you know, pick up um, clients who are in the program for six months and follow them and, and do a bunch of testing and do all the Asia tests, do all this med all the medical stuff that I didn't know how to do at the time, but he knew how to do. And I said, you do all the testing and I'll do all the, the exercise and I want to prove this works. And he said, awesome, let's do it. And so that was the dawn of my research, <laughs> my research <laughs> pro projects or mm -hmm. program. So I'm very grateful to him his help in the infancy of doing the research on this. And, and then luckily I was able to partner with a local uh, professor at Cal State San Marcos, Todd Astorino. We got our first NIH grant through that. I mean, we got a f almost $500,000 NIH grant to study bone density on ABT. So, I mean, that was insane. No one had done that at the time. Like I said, there's still so much research to be done in this area, and there's so much opportunity for new researchers, old researchers, you know, just to think outside the box, come up with something in this space as a project. And there's ample opportunity to show, I believe, significant results. So. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. And I know this was kind of last minute, but <laughs> we really appreciate it. You shared a lot of great information. So thank you very much, Eric. You're welcome. Uh, hopefully it's coherent enough for everyone to follow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for another episode of Rambling with Ryu coming at you in two weeks time.